My text uh, for this morning is the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35 of chapter 11, we read there, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. And it is an extraordinary statement. As perhaps most of you know, when, script, when the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Spirit, much of the editorializing that we have before us was not present, both in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, it was, they weren't as sophisticated in, in, in editing as we've come to be. Greek, for instance, was written, written all in smaller case letters initially. It lacked any punctuation. It lacked any paragraphs. It was just a, a section of text, a big section of text. But with time, some people have come to divide it to put punctuation, to put uh, uppercase letters, to define uh, proper names, and to put paragraphs. Eventually, in the Middle Ages, uh, someone divided the Bible into chapters. And later on, a few people uh, have divided even further into verses. And I must admit, as I think some of us who have had experience uh, wrestling with the text and, and preaching from, from the text, I must admit and confess that at times I've been frustrated with some of the editorial decisions of the, of the, the people who divided our text into chapters and verses. It's not uncommon when you come to a, to a text to find out that actually the, the first verse of the, of the next chapter still fits with the... Uh, it, would fit better with the previous chapter, but for some reason, the person who divided the Bible into verses took a, what seems to be a very uh, unhelpful approach with very little consideration. Like a, a, ha a, a sledgehammer was put to the text and it, it just divided and it seems to have no logic at times. But I... With all that frustration, I, I must say I forgive whoever it was that divided uh, the Bible into verses for this happy decision that he made in verse 35. He could have easily, whoever it was, have joined up this verse to another, and, but he, I believe, very consciously made the wise decision of allowing Verse 35, to stand alone on its own so that we might read it and might look at it for all the extraordinary substance that it presents to us. Someone said that this verse is a priceless jewel, unmatched, unparalleled. The shortest verse in, in, in terms of words, only two words, but yet there are very few verses, if any, in the Bible who carry as much deep meaning and substance as these two words. So let us allow this verse to stand solitary, at least this morning, and analyze its sublime simplicity. After all, the moment that Jesus wept was truly an extraordinary moment. Perhaps you're not convinced. Perhaps you say, what is it so extraordinary that Jesus wept? 
Why is it that you're so astounded? Why are you making a huge fuss about this? So my goal is to convince you. To convince you this morning. To convince you that this is truly an extraordinary thing that Jesus wept. Let us consider, first of all, who Jesus was and where he came from. Jesus was the son of the almighty God. One with God the Father. Eternally the only begotten son of the Father. He took on human flesh. But yet, in taking on human flesh, we know that his divinity remained unchanged. He was still fully God. His glory and his majesty, although veiled by human flesh, they remained unaltered. In heaven, our Lord Jesus never shed a tear. Before he came into this world of sin, Jesus never knew where he was to cry, to sorrow. Because in heaven there are no tears. There is no sorrow. Even to this day, our, the saints who have already departed, they know no longer what tears are. The angels who live in heaven, they do not know what it is to cry. And certainly the one who is the source and the spring of, of joy in heaven, he too did not know what it meant to cry. There is no sorrow there. The Lord of the angels, the most high son of God, he came from a place where there were no tears. As long as he was solely or possessed solely the divine nature before he took on flesh, he was far above the capacity to shed any tear. In heaven, he was the father's only begotten son. He was the delight of his father. We read that there was rejoicing within the Trinity. There is a unity that meant that they lacked nothing. The God, the God had lacked nothing within, its, uh, within himself. And from the Godhead, from Christ himself, the Son, there is a source of joy, a fountainhead of joy that flows to, throughout heaven. So when we read that Jesus wept, we should be struck with awe and wonder that the one who created the heavens and the earth would come from a place where there is only joy to this world to experience sorrow and pain and to shed tears. To descend to the unimaginable, undescribable depths of sorrow that exists here in this world. Truly, his humbling from being... Uh, in the form of God and taking on human flesh is fuller, is greater than we could ever even begin to describe. The wellspring of joy became the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's what this passage tells us. What a drastic, what a massive change Christ, uh, the Son of God, endured. What a monumental shift And then you consider why he took on human flesh. For our sake. He took on sorrow so that he might secure for his people, for us, a place where there is no sorrow. 
a place in a world where there is no crying, where there are no tears, no sorrow or pain. But that's only the first of our considerations of the extraordinary nature of why Christ's crying, of Christ's weeping, is so uh, marvelous. We consider who he was and where he came from. But let us consider more closely the context of why he cries. For Jesus to weep, something must have been extraordinary. Something must have caused, something must be uh, wondrous to cause the Son of God to shed tears, to, for tears to fall from his eyes. We read in just a few verses before our text for this morning that he was um, troubled, that he groaned in his spirit, that something so moved the emotion of our Lord that he groaned, that he was troubled, and eventually was seen by this weeping. He was indignant. He was uh, distressed. He was moved in the spirit and troubled. So what is it that moved him to be so indignant, to be so troubled and so distressed? Our text says that he was, or alludes to the fact that they were disbelieving friends, some friends were disbelieving. But we find it hard that it would, ju would be just this. Perhaps even uh, adding to the, to the fake uh, hypocritical sympathy of the, of, the, the, of the Jews who then went to accuse him to the Pharisees. Maybe this also caused him to groan. But I think there is something deeper that lies further that is truly the, the, the foundation the reason behind this indignation, behind Christ's weeping. Picture the, the scene that we've just read. This is not just a story. This is not myth. This happened 2,000 years ago. There is Jesus standing at the graveside, confronted directly with the last enemy, confronted directly, witnessing directly the wages of sin before his eyes. His friend, he, he himself called him, our friend Lazarus sleeps. His friend lying there. Think of who he is in his divine nature. He's the creator. All things were made by him and through him. He was the one that fashioned the heavens and the earth and it was his handiwork that made man in his image. And now there lies man, the image of God, marred by the sin. He was roused. This is what incited his indignation. He was roused. He was agitated. He was distressed. Our, our translation here perhaps uh, is not as uh, helpful as so often is the case. It just says that he was troubled. But some translations capture the, the meaning of this word was troubled, I, I believe, with more accuracy when it says that he troubled himself. Because there is a sense that, that the word here behind troubled is a, 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 an active word. It invo involves the, the, 
the active action of, of the person. He roused himself. He troubled himself. It indicates an active element, a conscious dimension. That Christ, seeing all of this, that he moved himself and he groaned himself. He was angered. This was not something that welled up to uh, came to him like uh, out of nowhere. He saw it and he he was indignant and he was angered with what he saw, and he groaned. And yet he was angered. And as the author of Hebrews says, the apostle says, he was sinless. You see, it is possible to be angry and not sin. Christ is this, if you imagine this uh, body of water, it's cl crystal clear. Sometimes we're like those bodies of water, of water. We're crystal clear, but as soon as you start stirring, all the, the mud and all of the sediment starts rising up and it becomes murky. But not with Christ. His uh, nature is such that he's clear, and even when stirred, that there is no murkiness, no muddiness in him. He was brewing something, but he was brewing it uh, out of distress, but in, in holiness and perfection and sinlessness. Very similar to how, uh, to how he, uh, he was when he expelled the, the money changers from the temple. He was angry, he was indignant, he was, but he was righteous anger as he chased the money changers. And I believe it's the same thing happening here. This righteous Anger, this indignation against the forces of evil, against the wages of sin. He's, he, he's moved and troubled. And this is the, the context that is extraordinary. Because in this, in this situation, in this roused estate, in this groaning and in this, in this troubled estate, state that he is, it wasn't... Curses that came out of his mouth. It wasn't uh, gazes of wrath and judgment that, that were seen in his eyes. In this state that he was in a storm within himself. It wasn't anger that flowed out. But it was compassion. It was love. It was tears. And this is truly extraordinary. That in the sight of sin where he would be totally justified and right to profess a lightning of curses and a thunder of threats upon, the, upon those listening. All that was seen was a groan. All that was heard was a groan. And all that was seen was tears coming down his eyes. As a, a, a tempest and a storm swoops over his frame, as he's stirred from head to toe in emotion. The outcome of that storm visibly on the outside was not words of terror and of judgment. It was not a penetrating gaze of judgment, fire and brimstone. But it was a blessed shower. That's those kind of showers that... that they are pleasant in the summer. It's not raining too hard. It's just refreshing, blessed shower of sympathy and compassion. Jesus wept. It is an extraordinary thing to be said and to know.
Let me just, before we move on to, to the next extraordinary element of Jesus weeping, let me just say this as an instruction for us. If all our anger, and we know, I know we all can be angry at times. My children know that I can be angry at times. Uh, I've seen some of you angry at times. It's a normal human experience. But if in all of our anger we manifested it in the same way that Christ manifests his anger here. Not with uh, woe, te- uh, words of woe, but with tears of compassion. We would be able to fulfill that text that says, be angry and do not sin. Because anger or true indignation at injustice can and should and must coexist and even fuel compassion and love. That's how we are angry without sinning. If our anger moves us and propels us, not to, to, to destroy, but to build. Not to hate, but to love. And at that moment, as Jesus stood near the grave, next to the resting place of a man that he held dear, that he called friend, a man who had been graced by his divine presence, who had been transformed by by his, his spirit as he stood there. The only thing that the, the onlookers could say was, behold, see, look how much he loved this man. Brothers and sisters, we are in a world that we are surrounded by thorns and thistles. Part of the human experience is a, an experience of sighing and groaning. That's what we go through. And we weep. We weep. That's why this is so extraordinary as well. Before we move on to the, to the, to the last uh, point here of the, of the significance of the Savior's tears. But that's why this is so extraordinary. I cry. I've wept. Perhaps not even long ago. Found myself weeping. And as I look to each and every one of us here, not all, but I've seen most of you cry. I've seen most of us cry. And that's not an extraordinary, is it? We all know that crying is normal. Crying is talking with someone yesterday crying is a, a release of all that built up emotion built up hormones or endorphins or whatever it is it's not extraordinary that people cry what is extraordinary here is that the son of god the sinless son of god cried in the days of his flesh well, let me just tr- dive a little bit deeper into the significance of why Christ cried. A third element that attests to the extraordinary nature of Christ's tears. These tears show us something about the sympathetic, compassionate nature of Christ. These tears show us Something or, or an undeniable testament to the sympathetic, compassionate nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
his tender and his loving heart. But I, perhaps I need to define these terms. found myself trying to define these terms in my head, so I went to the dictionary, which is always a very useful tool. Compassion. Compassion, the dictionary says, is a feeling of deep, of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. Sympathy is the, the act or a state of feeling sorrow for another or a compassion or compassion for another. So you see, I think the dictionary quite captures this, uh, that sympathy and compassion are the same thing. We often use it in different ways. Compassion is a, uh, in our modern day use of the, in our modern day parlance, use of the language uh, would be compassion is more of an active kind of sympathy. Compassion is the, the is sympathy plus action and sympathy is just feeling sorry. But that's not the case with the, with, the, with the words as they are used in the New Testament day. In fact, sympathy and compassion are basically the same word. They just come to the English uh, language from two different origins. Sympathy comes from the Greek, sympatheos, with uh, emotions, uh, having emotions with, sympathy. And compassion comes from the, uh, from the Latin, compassion, with Come, passion, passions, emotions. It's the same word and it has the same meaning. We just, as English so often is this mixture of different uh, strains of languages, we get synonyms that come from different places, but compassion and sympathy is the same thing. And even the word empathy that in our day is used uh, as sort of different from sympathy, it's the same thing. It's feeling in or feeling with, it's, it's, it's experiencing the emotions of another in our own thoughts and attitudes. So compassion, sympathy, or empathy is that ability that we have to resonate, to feel with this, the suffering of others, to feel their sorrow as if it were our own. That's what sympathy and compassion is. I know nowadays we use compassion in a, in a, lit, in a little bit different way. That being said, so what does this passage tell us? It tells us that undoubtedly, undoubtedly, Christ, our Lord Jesus, is one who embodies the sentiment of sympathy and, and compassion to an extent that is hard for us to fathom. He was deeply moved. He was filled with compassion and sympathy at the sight of the mourning and the sorrow around him. When Jesus saw her weeping, we read, when Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned. He, he groaned in himself. He was troubled or he troubled himself. And what a comfort that is, that is for us, brothers and sisters. that Jesus demonstrates this amount of sympathy, of compassion towards the hardships of his people. He knows our plight. He knows our suffering. And in fact, one of the most striking things of Christ groaning and weeping is his sympathy. Because we only read of him crying and weeping and groaning, not connected to his own sufferings, but connected to the sufferings of others. 
Notwithstanding how agonizing and, uh, and, and hard the cross was, we don't read that he shed a single tear for his own suffering. Notwithstanding the pain and the, the blood that was shed there, the immense pain, the emotional anguish of the forsakenness of the Father, notwithstanding uh, the, the blood that bled, uh, the, his hands and feet bleeding profusely, we read not of his tear, of tears falling from his eyes. Why? Because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He cried at Jesus' tomb. He cried at Gethsemane. And one might argue there that perhaps it was because of the sufferings that were coming upon him. I'd say that's different, but that's uh, for another day. And he cried while he looked down from the hill at Jerusalem. And tears fell from his eyes because he knew the hardship and the, and the judgment that was coming to them. Another element of this that perhaps is instructive and encouraging and comforting for us is that Jesus cried in this case, knowing fully well that in a few minutes, in a few moments after he cried, Lazarus would be raised from the dead. And yet he was still troubled at that time. Isn't that wonderful? Pause a moment and consider that Jesus, even though soon would bring Lazarus, his friend, back to life, yet in those few moments before he raised Jesus from the dead, he cried. Even though he knew those tears would be turned into rejoicing in a few moments, he cried. He, he wept. Even the temporary afflictions of his saints, the, the, the light and momentary afflictions of the saints, move his heart. They are light and momentary, brothers and sisters. I don't know what's going on in your life, but they are truly light and momentary. Soon, very soon, as the, that chorus says, we, we're going to see the king. We're going to be welcomed into glory where there are no tears, there, where there is no sorrow. But yet now, although momentary, we suffer. We cry. The pain we, we feel now is not uh, imaginary. It's real. It's light because you compare it to the afflictions of hell and whatever we're undergoing here. In comparison, in comparison to, the, uh, to, to eternal judgment and death in hell is light. And they're momentary because we know glory is coming. But Paul doesn't mask it and say that those things are not real. He says they are afflictions nonetheless. We undergo through them. We suffer through them. Oh, I, I, I remember this, this situation many years ago when, when we were still in Portugal, the a preacher that used to come and preach in our in our congregation. His wife uh, unexpectedly and sadly died in a in an accident. She was hit uh, crossing the street, and we felt his pain. We, 
few months later when he came to us, um, he said that he never cried. One thing he was very happy with, he never cried because he trusts the providence of God. And I know he said that out of the, the out of faith and trust, and perhaps he was glorifying God in, even in all of that. But let us not be like that. Let us not pretend that our sufferings, that our afflictions are, are, are non-existent. That, that, is, uh, that is not Christian theology. That is not what our Lord Jesus believed. That's not Christ's religion. That's Stoicism. That's what the, the Greek Stoics used to believe. If you just pretend that it's not real, it, it doesn't affect you. As long as you're strong enough to refuse to be affected by it, you're fine. But no. Our Lord Jesus says afflictions are very real. And it's fine for us to feel them. And finally, before I need to close in a, in a moment, but as we speak of Christ's tears, the one aspect that's perhaps more comforting than any other in all of this, in this verse, is that we know that the one who shed tears here in this passage, in the, uh, at the grave uh, of Lazarus, he is still the same. He doesn't change. There is no variation in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even though he doesn't shed any tears any longer, because he's in glory, he's in heaven, and there are no tears there, the heaven knows no sorrow, his heart of compassion and sympathy remains exactly the same as it was in the, of, in the days that he roamed this earth. His capacity to sympathize and to have compassion, they do not change. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The double negative here sometimes throws us off. So just remove the double negative and put it in the affirmative. For we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Despite being unable to weep, Jesus' heart still feels just as deeply and truthfully the sorrows of his people as he felt in the, in, in the grave uh, or in front of the grave of Lazarus. You can still come to him with your sorrow, with your weakness. And that's what Paul assures. Because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, let us therefore, he says, let us confidently, boldly approach the throne, God's throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. That's the invitation to all of us, believer or unbeliever alike, to come to the throne of grace, to receive help. To be helped. Because his loving, compassionate sympathy is the same. It's seen here in tears. But it's seen in other places, in other ways. His sympathy is what makes him the complete savior. The, the, the only savior that we can turn to. The same Apostle, he says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to be made like us 
that he might be merciful and faithful, uh, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself suffered, being tempted, he is able to hate, to help those who are tempted. So the next time you cry of sorrow, remember Jesus cried as well. He cried at Lazarus' tomb. He cried in the garden. He cried overlooking Jerusalem. He knows what it means to cry. The next time you're suffering from bodily pain, remember that he himself, he took on human flesh and he suffered in the body. He was scourged. He was crucified. The next time you're emotionally anguished, he sweated. He sweated tears of blood, uh, or drops of blood in the garden. In that dark forsakenness of, of Calvary, he knew what, was to, what it meant to be emotionally anguished more than ever we will understand. Next time you experience ingratitude, remember that your Lord, he experienced ingratitude. He was forsaken by his family, by his own blood. He came for his own and his own did not receive him. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was denied or he was betrayed by one of his closest companions. And he was denied by one of his closest friends. So he knows what you're going through. He knows what it means to suffer. He was tempted. He bore the burden of temptation in the, in the wilderness. He bore our sins in the, in the, mm -hmm. at the cross so that we might be lightened from our burdens. Yes, the sympathy of Jesus means literally and truly that he feels our suffering, that he suffers with us and that he suffered for us so that he might be the help in our time of need. Let us remember that he sets an example for us as well. A word of encouragement for us is that in the same way that he does these things, he sets an example for us. We're told to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to be devoted to one another in love, to carry each other's burdens, to fulfill the law of Christ in this way. Not to take our own personal needs first, but to put others before us. To encourage the, the discouraged, to help the weak. In this we are called as members of the body of Christ to suffer for one in one another's sufferings. If you cannot do this, I, I don't see any reason. Like Lloyd-Jones used to say, if you cannot do this, I, can, I see no reason why you should even think yourself to be a Christian. Because this is at the heart of Christianity. The oneness of the body. Walking in love. Remembering those who are in prison. As if you were their fellow prisoner. To, to remember those who are being mistreated. As if you yourself were suffering. 
And perhaps the be most beautiful picture that Paul presents to us is that if one member suffers, every member suffers with it. If one member is honored, every member rejoices with it. Let us this encourage us, seeing our Lord Jesus weep at the sight of suffering, to weep at the sight of suffering in our midst, not to be apathetic, but to be sympathetic. Because Christ was never apathetic. The greatest proof of his love and compassion is that not only that he wept in, the, in Lazarus' grave, but he was so moved by the sight of sin and death that he did something that goes even beyond the tears that he shed at, at Lazarus' grave. To shed a tear is a lot. If you're suffering, if a friend comes to you and he cries with you, that, 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 that means a lot. It is a demonstration of love. But there are demonstrations of love that even go beyond this. One withholding from himself so that, other, so that this friend might receive uh, and, and see that love, the givingness, the self-sacrifice. And that's what Christ did. In comparison with the cross, the tears that he shed at Lazarus' tomb are, are but small and insignificant, really having said that they were extraordinary. But in comparison to what he did out of love and compassion and the cross, the tears here uh, pale and almost fall into obscurity. Because the greatest demonstration of love was the self-sacrifice of Christ, not for friends, but for enemies. For you and me, who are his, he died for us. But it's not just the love of the Son. It's the love of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the Apostle John says, In this was manifested the love of God towards us. That God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might have life through him. Indeed, this is the point that we, like the Jews, should, should go, Behold how he loved man. Behold how he loved him. But the greatest of things is not to be able to say, Behold how he loved Sally and Sarah and, and John and George. The greatest of things is not to be able to say, Behold how he loves the, this brother or that brother. The greatest of things is to be able to say, Behold how he loved us, how he loved me, how he loved me by sending his son to die. That is truly the most wondrous thing. God sending his son into the world to die for sinners and to be able to say, I'm one of those. Can you say it? If you can say it, do you know it truly? Or would you pray, as Paul prays for the, for the church, that they would know this, the surpassing love, or the, the, the love that surpasses knowledge. They would, they would know the depths of God's love. Behold how he loved us. For scarcely a righteous man will die. For a righteous man one will die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, if those who saw Jesus weep, if those Jews that say, oh, behold, how he loved him, would have pondered and considered if they would, if they, if, if they would receive that love as, as well. Oh, if those who were there, what tragic end for them. They saw God's love, but they never experienced. They heard it, but they never uh, bowed before him. But behold, the love that Christ has for us. He came. He stirred faith in us. He sought us while we were lost. He clothed us with his righteousness. He instructed us by his grace. He gave us his spirit. He bestowed on us the new birth. He gave us the spirit of adoption that now, so that now we cry out, Abba, Father, behold how he has loved individuals such as we are. Behold the manner of love that the Father bestowed upon them, that we should be called the children of God. So what we do with Christ's love, finally and quickly, in the same way that Christ's action more than his words demonstrate his love for us. My question is, what do our actions say about our love towards the Father? Is there anyone who, upon looking at our life of obedience, principle, obedience, obedience out of love, not out of, of the law to try and earn or merit salvation, but obedience because we love Christ. Is there someone who would say, behold how that man or that woman, how that young girl or that young man, how that, how that old man or how that old woman, behold how that person loves Christ. Is there such an attitude in us that would cause others to wonder, look at how this man loves God. Look at how this man is devoted to the things of God. Behold how he sheds tears and how he loves him and how he obeys him and how he is so devoted to Christ's interests and, and kingdom, how he's so zealous for his glory and honor that they are compelled even though they don't understand it, that they are compelled to say, see how he loves him, perhaps even with a scorn. Do you love this, this person that you don't even know if he existed from 2,000 years ago to, uh, in order to sacrifice all of this? Is there anyone? Is our, are our actions that way? Are we the kind of people that, as the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain? May the Lord be gracious to make us such, to love him as he loved us first. That's the only reason why we love him. We love him because he first 